is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I am Mike Winger, and this is my cat, Moxie, who sometimes joins us live. That's actually her. Oops, I kicked her camera. There she is. <laughs> scared her. Um, anyway, I'm here to answer your guys' questions, not about cats, sadly, but about <laughs> something even better, actually. That's the bad news. The good news is it's about Jesus, Christianity, the Bible, uh, the Christian faith, apologetics, like defending the truths of the Christian faith, Basically, whatever you have on deck, I'm going to talk to you about. And I'm going to start with the first question, which when I find ah, my button, my big red button. Question number one is from Robert T., who asks about the wives of the apostles. And you might be surprised to know we do have a bit of information about them in the, in the Bible. So Robert T. says, were Christ's disciples married? Did they have families? I believe there's a reference to Peter's in-law, but I find it to be an interesting question. What would it be like for them? How would that fit with what the Lord tells us about the role of a husband and father? The love for God trumps all. So did that override their responsibilities as a husband slash father? So I, I take this question to have like sort of two sides to it. One side is, you know, the facts about their wives. Were they married and what was going on with them back then? And then the second side is, hey, um... Sometimes people feel a, a, a tension between their responsibilities to their family and the responsibilities to the kingdom of God. And they, there have even been those who've done missionary work where they've abandoned family in order to do missions. Or say a pastor who spends so much time doing things for his local church that he is not there for his own family. And then there can be like a conflict between those. So we'll talk about that too. First, the apostles were they in fact married and the answer is going to be a resounding yes in spite of what some people will say let me walk you through a, a few places in scripture you already mentioned um peter's mother-in-law but let's just look real quick at that this is in luke chapter 4 verse 38 as you guys are loading in the other questions i'll take 20 of them today and it says um this is early in jesus's ministry and he is there at peter's house who he shares with his brother Andrew, and the mother-in-law seems to live there as well. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. This is recorded a few times in the Gospels, and it's real consistent. Uh, it's Peter's mother-in-law, which means that Peter was married. He had a wife, right? And some would suggest that his wife was, was dead or died sometime after this or something like that. I think we have an argument against that in scripture. But let me just give you guys a little bit of a clue as to how their culture is so different than ours. In our culture right now, this is weird in human history what's happening right now. People stay single for really long periods of time, not because they have a mission their life is on, where like they're single to say serve Jesus or single to be a missionary, single for some function. They're just single because it's just, we're delaying adulthood and marriage is part of that delay. So that, I'm not, I'm not saying like if you get married at a later age that something's wrong with you. I'm not suggesting that. Um, I got married at the age of 30. So I'm not saying something's wrong with you. What I am saying is that we can use our lens to look at ancient culture. And in their culture, no, that's not happening. Like everybody's getting married. It was considered like a Jewish obligation to get married and to have children. This was like normal in, in their culture. Everybody does it. You get married, you have lots of kids. This is what you're supposed to do. It was part of the command to be fruitful and multiply, or at least that was their understanding of the command. And the apostles reflect this attitude in Matthew 19 when they're talking with Jesus about marriage. They sarcastically bring up singleness as if it's like an option nobody would pick, 
right? And Jesus is like, actually, it's a real option. You can do that. But but that was counterculture. They were going to get married. Then we have more specific info in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And this is where Paul, this is like real detailed, right? Um, he lays out the idea that all of the apostles were married, all of them. So this is in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. He's kind of building a case for Though he has rights as an apostle, he lays them down to serve others, but he doesn't want that to make people think he has no rights. So that's the short version. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Cephas or Peter that he's talking about Peter. So this, some say that this phrase believing wife is really, um, uh, a sister partner in ministry <laughs> and so that like like as if peter's going around and these other apostles are going around with with somebody who is just a woman who's a, a ministry partner but they're not actually married um except here's the problem paul seems to have had women ministry partners and he's saying he doesn't have what these what this is a be believing wife which is probably talking i think we are safe in saying is talking about a marriage partner and so um he gives you a list of who actually has a wife, right? The other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, James and John, and Cephas or Peter. So he, he lists them all as, as having wives. And they're his example of like, hey, I could take a wife with me on my journey. Paul, it seems, was not married at the time. He was probably married when he was younger. In, in Paul's case, a case can be made that his wife had died. Um, another case, you could say that his wife had left him. That's also possible. We really don't know, okay? He didn't have a wife that he was taking with him. Um, he, he didn't seem to be married at all because he talks about singleness and, and identifies himself with singleness. But to be a Pharisee and in their culture, you would have expected him to be married at some point. So that's why they guess maybe she left him or maybe she died. But here's the thing. This leaves us with the impression that maybe the apostles being married, when they followed Jesus, they just abandoned their families. And, and that's why I brought 1 Corinthians 9, 5 up. No, they didn't. Because Peter and the other apostles, they traveled on missions with their wives. And what's implied is any children under their care would obviously travel with them as well. You're not talked about there, but they would travel with them as well if they were young enough, if they weren't old enough to be on their own. And so um, they're, they're, they were on a family ministry trips. right? They, they weren't the, the leaders of the church necessarily, but they were traveling with their husbands and they were um, involved in going wherever their husbands went, which means that for a season, Peter had left his, it seems, okay, this is a guess, he may have left his family and the other apostles may have left their family during that, that three-year period of time where Jesus is doing ministry. They frequently came back to Galilee, so it's not like they weren't around at all. They probably were bringing funds, I'm guessing, bringing funds and supplies because they were supplied by the the, the ministry of others to them. Remember, Jesus sends them out empty-handed, but they don't they don't stay empty-handed. And if you read the Gospels, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm not saying they weren't providing for their family, but there's a good chance that during the during the ministry of Jesus, if they weren't that they weren't uh, traveling with the apostles and Jesus during that three-year period. That's entirely possible. And I would look at this as a temporary situation, if that's the case. It's possible they traveled with Jesus. It's odd that they're never mentioned at any point if they were traveling, so I would lean towards thinking they weren't. But after this, when the gospel's going out into the world and when the apostles are traveling and all that, their, their, their wives come with them at that point. So this helps us answer the question. Um, abandoning your family 
to do ministry, is that a thing? And the answer is no. Uh, just like with, say, military, you go on deployment, you're not abandoning your family, you're still sending funds to them, you're providing, and you do plan on coming back, right? There's temporary deployment moments, like say the three years with Jesus, right? You're still visiting, you're still seeing them, they come back to Capernaum over and over again, and probably bring in supplies and stuff for them as well. But they're not actually abandoning the family because then the wives are traveling with them later. This is also reinforced in 1 Timothy 5.8 where it says this. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, his own home, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There is no biblical idea of abandon your family. Now, there is a strong teaching of if your family rejects you because of Christ, you still stay, stay loyal to Christ. That was them rejecting you, though. Just like the gospel, that's people rejecting God. It's not the other way around. And um, otherwise, yeah, you take care of your family. You're with your family. You're blessing your family. You're you're providing for your family. That That is something we're called to do. And those pastors who have... And there are some pastors, some missionary people and stuff, who have actually seeing their family as a liability in the service of the Lord. Not because their family's rebellious against God, not because their family's leaving them because of their faith in Christ, but rather because they just want to invest all their time and not have any attachments to take care of outside of the ministry stuff they're doing. I think that the counsel I've heard and I would give is your family's your first ministry. Your min your ministry to others must overflow from your ministry to your family. This is why the requirements for leadership in the church involves someone who is a good husband and a good father. Because if you're not taking care of your family, how will you help the church? That's actually what 1 Timothy says. So I, I hope that answers that question. We're going to go to question number two, which is coming from Grayson Fuller. Grayson says, I've had multiple encounters where people directly approach me and my wife on the street or at a gas station asking for money, food, or a ride. I know most people would say don't give anything because you're uh, you're feeding their bad habit, implying drugs here. And I know there's also the risk that if you do help or give, they may try to push for even more favors. But it's obvious that Jesus was compassionate toward beggars. What are some biblical principles for this in today's age? Um, Grayson, I, I'm going to give you my opinion on this. Um, my opinion is that people go through too, they get too extreme on this issue. Okay, actually, let me rephrase that because I think Christians should be extreme. <laughs> so the problem isn't the extremity of their view. The problem is that their view lacks wisdom. Okay, we're to be as, as, as gentle as doves, but as wise as a serpent, Jesus says, right? So we're supposed to be very thoughtful and wise. Um, yes, you're to give, give to him who asks of you, right? But imagine if we took that rule with no wisdom. So when Simon the sorcerer comes to the apostles and he says, hey, um, I want to have the power you have. This is his version, his understanding of them. He goes, I want to be able to lay hands on people that they receive the spirit because Simon's probably going to try to sell this to others. And, you know, he give to, give to him who asks you. Well, why didn't they, why didn't they say, well, we have to be generous and give. So we want to try to pray that God would give you this ability too, Simon. Instead, they kick him out, right? Because there's wisdom here. It's not meant to be a rule that we take with no wisdom of any kind. So, um, the, uh, the, the rules actually in, let me give you another example. First Timothy five, eight, which talks about helping others. This is a community of believers who have, have funds they use to, to distribute to the poor. Right. And he talks about taking care of widows, but notice this, Paul doesn't use such a clumsy rule as, uh, give to him who asks, 
No other wisdom is ever added to this, you know, thing. He doesn't do that. He says, let a widow be enrolled. This is in the list of widows who get funds from the church. Let her be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Wait, so the church isn't just supposed to take care of every widow on earth? No, he's like, hey, you know, if they're young, they can get married to somebody else and someone else is providing for them. We're not trying to burden the church while it does take care of people who are needy. Um, and she has to have been a faithful wife, wife of one husband, right? She has a reputation for good works. Like, Otherwise, the church isn't going to do this regular taking care of her. Uh, this gives us wisdom because as a as a pastor, right, <laughs> I've, I know firsthand that pretty much every church that's not maybe in a really tiny community is going to have people calling and regularly going to the church asking for money because to the world and to the worldly people, they think the church is a rich institution. Um, and it's usually not. Usually they're just struggling to get by for the most part. And they just come and ask for handouts, ask for handouts, ask for handouts. And so what I'm suggesting here is that here's a, here's a teaching of Jesus, right? Give to him who asks you. That's a general posture and attitude. It doesn't mean you don't have any wisdom about how you put that into practice. Here's an example from the New Testament in 1 Timothy 5.9 that proves that they're not just give to him who asks you in all scenarios, no wisdom applied. No, no, there's wisdom being implied. So uh, being applied. So that being said, let me look at your question one more time. Um, I know most people would say, don't give anything because you're feeding their bad habit. Okay, that is actually wisdom. If you know you're, the money you're giving somebody is being used to buy drugs and enable them to stay on the street and not be accountable for the life they're living, then I don't see how I'm helping them by giving them money. All giving isn't helping, right? Sometimes giving is harming. And there's it's good to have wisdom on that. So yeah. But if you do give and they spend it poorly, I think that's more on them than you. I'm not not that it's all your fault, but you don't want to become an enabler in a real negative sense. Um, you said, I know there's also the risk that if you help, they may push for even more favors. Okay, I don't care about that. Uh, personally, if if I help somebody and then they come up and they start asking for me all the time, I can just say no. <laughs> so no, I'm not too worried about that. You, you just give because this is the right time and moment to give. You said, it's obvious Jesus was compassionate towards beggars. And absolutely, um, in a couple ways. One, the early church, they would they would uh, often take care of people that were poor, not just beggars, but poor. See, there's a difference. You could be a beggar but not be poor. You could be poor and not be a beggar. So they didn't just squeaky wheel gets the grease, but they would, would try to help people who had needs. And there is some wisdom there. Um, but in another sense, the early church and Jesus was compassionate to the poor in that they treated them as equals. They didn't treat them as a lesser lesser status individual, those who were poor. So what are some biblical principles? Yeah, um, the number one biblical principle is this. You, you won't think clearly on this issue of money if you, aren't, um, if you aren't considering all your money as belonging to God and your ultimate provider being God, not your job, not, not those other things. That's important because you don't want personal greed weighing in. That's not wisdom. My greed is not wisdom. Wisdom is, is this a good time to give? Does that person need help? Am I the, am I the one who should support and help them? All that is true is good, but boy, I, I, I want my money. I want my money. That's not good. That's not healthy. And, um, that can be very harmful for people. So there's a, a few uh, important things that I think you should consider. I hope that that helps Grace and Fuller. And number three, Doug Shannon, what is a miracle? If it can be explained, is it still a miracle? This is actually a real like debate that people have is how do you define the term miracle? 
So some def define the term miracle as a violation of the laws of physics. I reject that definition. I have, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, one of the problems with that definition is that when a miracle happens, is this a violation of laws? For instance, um, you know, here's my coffee cup. Gravity would pull it down. I lift it up. Um, now, this isn't a violation of the law of gravity. This is just other other laws coming into play. So, I think I think a, a better analogy would be this. Um, well, actually, let me give you a story. This is from John Lennox. John Lennox is an interesting, very interesting apologist. He has a lot of interesting content. He tells a story about, uh, you know, like let's say he's at a hotel and there's he has his wallet in a drawer in his hotel room, and it's got like say fifty bucks in it, and he goes out and, you know, the maid comes and cleans the room, and then he comes back later, and he goes and he opens the drawer and he checks and his wallet is missing the fifty dollars. Now you could say you know, in, in this closed system of the drawer, this, this, this area here, there's a violation of the laws of physics in the drawer, right? Like, like nothing within the drawer would cause this to happen. This doesn't make any sense. You, you can't suggest gravity or, or inertia or, or anything. The second law of thermodynamics caused the 50 bucks to go away. And so the obvious solution is you don't, you don't conclude the laws of physics were violated. Instead, you conclude somebody opened the system, opened the drawer and, and from outside came and change things. And that would be a better understanding of how God does miracles. One of one of the ways of understanding a miracle is something that would not have happened without God's intervention. That's a pretty loose term, but I, I, I think it, it works well. So I'm suggesting um, Jesus' Jesus's, uh, birth through Mary, a virgin, she would never have become pregnant without God's intervention. Now you could say it violated the laws of physics. That's strange. It's not like the laws of physics actually work that way. Uh, they're not like, it's not like some judge, some police officer with a physics badge is like, no, you can't do that. Like, it, it's just a weird way to think about things. But obviously it wouldn't have happened without God's intervention, right? Merely if the stuff in the drawer was affecting the stuff in the drawer, that $50 never would have disappeared. But if something from outside the drawer came in, that certainly that thing has the natural power to do all that stuff. Well, God, it's not that he's unnatural. He's just not part of the created order. Right? So if something outside the creator order is needed to cause this to happen, you may call that miraculous. That, that could be, a, or some would say, just a supernatural event. Um, but there's another type of miracle. And I'm open to this being from God as well and, 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 saying, and calling this a miracle. And that would be a miracle of God's providence. That is, this happened through natural things, natural events, or, or, or perhaps you'd say events all part of the created order can explain this thing happening. But we see God's ultimate providential planning and intention behind it. And then you can call that miraculous because it shows some sort of involvement of God in the thing that's happening. So an example could be, you know, you, you, uh, you, you've, you've lost your job. You need to pay your bills. You have this big bill that's due. It's $1,083.12. And you know you've got to pay this by the end of the month. And you're like praying and you're like, Lord, I, I need... I need help. I don't know what else to do. I've tried everything I can. And then in the mail, like that next day, there comes a, a check from someone who's, who just says something like, maybe it says something like, Hey, um, you know, I, I, 
I, I sold this thing that I that I that we bought together 20 years ago, and I finally sold it. This is half of what it was, and it's exactly a thousand eighteen and eighty three cents or whatever the number I was. It's like to the penny, it's exactly the same. Now you could trace back the series of events that caused this pretty easily in a natural or, you know, according to the creator order sense. You guys bought something together many years ago. You guys sort of separated as friends. You forgot all about it. He sold it. He cut the selling price in half and sent you a check. But the timing, <laughs> the timing, the exact amount to the penny, the day or the next day, right when you needed it, then you start to think, okay, God's involved here, right? So there's something of, a, of an obviousness to God's providence in what's happening here. And I'm okay with calling that miraculous as well. But you see that the word miracle can be a squirrely term, a, a difficult thing to apply. Yeah. Do you apply the term miracle to something that Satan does? Like if it's demonic, well, it's not really part of the normal created order, even though they're part of the created order, but they're in the spiritual part of the created order. So, I, okay, I guess you could call that a miracle. So Satan has lying signs and wonders. Okay, that's possible. All right, let's go to number four. Uh, this is from Follower of Christ forever who says should christians be worried about government control i have friends not getting the covid vaccine because it's a way to be controlled by the government i want to think biblically about this thanks mike um okay so uh, let me just start by saying this uh, i don't have the super strong confident opinions that a lot of people have on this topic so what i'm going to do is not try to give you guys all here's what you need to think about the covid vaccine and how it relates to government i'm I, I don't, I try not to comment on things that I don't think I understand well enough. This is one of those things. But let me approach just this micro issue of should, um, should I be worried about the government because a vaccine, a mandatory vaccine, is a way to be controlled by the government? Should I be bothered by that as a Christian? Let's suppose it wasn't a vaccine. Let's suppose it was a new ID card that you had to have for whatever purpose. So this, this could apply to various things. Um, because I, I feel as though some people are going to answer this question based upon what camp they find themselves in about vaccines instead of actually analyzing the issue from a hopefully biblical perspective. Okay, as a Christian, I am generally not worried about government control. Um, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Government control can that is can lead down horrible, horrible avenues and to terrible, terrible things. But I especially want to emphasize, as a Christian, I don't see that it is my main thing to worry about that. My main thing is to worry about the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus, he is God with us. He came, he, he died on the cross for your sins and my sins that you could be forgiven if you put your trust in him, that his death and resurrection was on your behalf because God loves you and he wants to restore you to himself as you trust in him. Right? This, is, this is a big deal that you sin, Jesus paid for it, and you can be forgiven just by trusting in him, uh, turning to him. That's what I worry about, okay? That's what I care about. When it comes to government control, I'm mostly concerned that government control would stop me from preaching that message. That's my biggest concern, and, and I'm, everything else is secondary when it comes to that worry as a Christian. That being said, as a Christian, if there's something that I'm called to do and the government tells me not to, I'm going to do it anyways. Let me say this again. If there's something that I am called to do as a Christian, like I have an obligation to God to do this thing, 
and the government tells me not to, I am going to do it anyways. So in a sense, the government control should never work on a Christian if the thing violates what God is calling you to do. Do vaccines do that? I, I'm not going to no. I In general, vaccines, no. Okay. Is, is a, a mandatory vaccine, the very idea of a mandatory vaccine, is violating my Christian principles? No, it's not. I don't see the problem there. Now, if you have other concerns about health and safety and all this other stuff, I'm not going to try to weigh in on all that because it's a little over my head. And I'm personally sick of everybody knowing everything about things they don't know all that much about. So um, should I, as a Christian, on the basis of rejecting government control, should I reject a vaccine simply because it's being demanded of me? And I think my answer is going to be no here. That generally speaking, the Christian view allows for a lot of government control up not it doesn't ask for it it allows for it up until the point where government asks you to do something god doesn't want you to do or government tells you not to do something god does want you to do that is the christians are not committed to fight for libertarian values okay i'm not saying i don't like libertarian values i'm not saying they're bad values i'm saying a christian commitment is not a commitment to fight for those values the earliest christians had much less freedom than, say, we have in the U.S. today. And even if things continue to trend towards less freedom, we will still have more freedom than what they had in the first century. And they did not make it their obsession to fix or change those things. You can, but I'm saying it's not a Christian obligation. Um, no, their obligation was to preach the gospel, to follow Jesus, and if there's a violation between the will of man and the will of God, that is government control, when it violates God's commands for my life, that's when I, I just do what I'm going to do and serve the Lord. There's my thoughts on that. Um, I hope it's helpful for somebody. We got no more questions for today. I've got all 20 listed. I'm, gonna, I'm on number five now. And I hope that you guys find it a blessing. We do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That is in California. And you're welcome to join and put your questions in the live chat. And when you have an anonymous question, you can put A-N-Q, those three letters, anonymous question, A-N-Q, and we'll keep it that way as well. William Hall says, does living in the spirit mean fighting the flesh? How do you fight something that is already dead? All right. Does living in the spirit mean fighting the flesh? Um, so the the terminology fighting the flesh. You know, okay. Off the top of my head in my little whatever available catalog there is in my head of scripture. I don't know of a scripture that says fight the flesh. So perhaps you're... Now, it's an analogy. It's an analogy. Your flesh is not physically dead, okay? But the, the flesh is considered crucified with Christ, right? So let's um, let's look at some scriptures on this. And let's, let's, let's try to draw from the biblical way that the flesh is discussed. So here's an example. Um, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is Galatians 2, 19 and Moving on to 20 now. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This has to do partly with an identification. Okay. Uh, because I believe in Jesus, it's, it's like I've been crucified with Jesus. Which is to say that the penalty for my sin has been paid because he already was judged and, and sentenced for me or I should say my sins were judged and he was sentenced for me. I don't think Jesus was judged in that sense. 
but um, my sins were judged and he was sentenced for me. And, um, and I'm like, I identify with him. Okay. And now the life that I do live, right. I live by faith in the son of God. So not, not by my power or anything like that. Now, later on in Galatians, uh, we're going to get a discussion of the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit and the interaction that I have with the flesh and the spirit. So let me read through this and, and, and ask yourself, what is our interaction? Okay. You know, let's avoid the terminology right now, fighting the flesh. Let's just say, what is our interaction with that flesh stuff? But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. The first thing I'll notice is this, is that, and I've mentioned this recently in a Q and a, but I'll mention it again here. And I'm not just rehashing the same info. This is a little different. Um, but there is our flesh, my sinful nature, that is the life, the lifestyle, the attitudes that, that go against God. Those things are still desires I experience. Only I assign them to something called the flesh, right? Like I say, Hey, that those desires stem from the carnal nature, the sinful self, the flesh, but I still have them. So if the flesh was dead in every sense of the word, then there would be no desires coming from the flesh. Okay. Uh, verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there is a battle. You could call it a fight. Um, I guess between the spirit and the flesh, but they're battling like the battle that that's there is just conflicting desires. Okay. That's the battle that's there. just, it's all in the realm of desire. Okay. So it's not like the flesh is, you know, having some sort of like, if you could put on spiritual goggles that let you see spiritual things, it's not like the flesh is like, you know, pulls out a brass knuckles and socks the spirit and the spirit, you know, like uppercuts the flesh. Like, no, 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 this is all in the realm of desires. I have desires that are bad. And then I have desires that are good. And these bad desires come from the flesh. The good desires are coming from the Holy spirit. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Then it talks about the works of the flesh. So these things are very much alive in the sense of desires I have, I still get from the flesh. Some Christians deny this. This is why I emphasize this. They suggest that you, you don't have these anymore. Like you as a Christian, you don't even desire say to, to do idolatry. Like you would never have a, a, an inkling in you that would want to do idolatry. Well, it's like, well, yeah, but it would be supplied by the flesh, um, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, jealousy, rivalries, fits of anger. These, these things are things Christians will, will, um, struggle with. They will feel those desires. So in that, let me read your question again in light of this. You says, does living in the spirit mean fighting the flesh? How do you fight something that's already dead? Okay, the flesh is dead, kind of like Adam and Eve were in the garden. <laughs> Death doesn't mean it's, it, they don't, it doesn't exist anymore. Death means it no longer has that place of, of um, authority or, or it doesn't control my life, doesn't have to control my life. I now have the spirit so the flesh is dead, right? I've died to myself, but yet I'm told to mortify myself or basically kill it again. In other words, it's an ongoing battle of some kind, whether you want to use the term fighting or not. There's a battle in myself, in my desires, between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh, and I get to pick which desires I'll obey. When I feed one, it grows. You walk in the flesh, the flesh becomes stronger and more dominant and more uh, control in your thought processes, right? The walking in the spirit, you grow. You, the spirit becomes more in power, more dominant. And, and Ephesians uses this language because it talks about how the desires become increasingly corrupt and how walking in the spirit, we get renewed. 
renewed and we're in the new man, in the new person that God is making us. So yeah, you have an ongoing battle as a Christian with the flesh because dead isn't meant to be used in a clumsy sense of the flesh, but in a careful sense. Um, I'm just getting a lot of text messages right now, y'all. I'm just making sure nothing's in emergency. All right. All right. William Hall has a question. No, that was William Hall. Sorry, William. I hope that helped. Catalina Islands says, hi, Mike. What did John mean in 1 John by perfect love casts out fear and that whoever fears has not been made perfect? Thank you so much. This one's been coming up a lot in different ways. Um, let's go to the passage. And I'm not going to answer everything about the passage. I've talked about it recently. But let's just ask, what does the phrase mean? Perfect love casts out fear. All right. So there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been made perfect, has not been perfected in love. First thing I want to point out is the word perfect in your Bibles. Often, often, like a lot of the time, it's a word that tends to mean something like mature, mature. And we tend to use the word perfect to refer to something that's like, like, um, oh, it's perfect. Therefore, it's, it couldn't be any better. Like it's, it's perfection, like a perfect circle. If you zoomed in on it, it would be absolutely perfect. No, no bumps or squiggles or, you know, the, the angles are absolutely right. But that's not what the scripture term t- tends to mean, right? When they say perfect, they tend to mean complete or mature, like full age, grown up. In that light, there's no fear in love, but perfect love or mature love casts out fear. Well, why? Because fear has to do with punishment and where fears has not been made perfect or not been perfected in love. Let me let me rephrase this in my own terminology with my interpretation mixed in. Okay, this is not a quote. This is my interpretation. If you, if you know God's love for you and you are living out God's love for others, you will have incredible confidence. You will have maturity in your love and you will understand that when you stand before God, there will be no condemnation for you. So there will be no fear of punishment with you, right? Because... Having that mature love, both in your knowledge of God's love for you and your love for others, that that love casts out fear because the same attitude of love you see in God towards you and that you have towards others, you realize that in judgment, God's going to be looking at you that way. And so you're not scared. You're not scared of that future punishment. But if you are, if you are scared, well, then you haven't been made perfect in love. You have not yet achieved this Christian maturity. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you have not reached that level of maturity. You haven't yet seen, right? Like, like John says, behold the love the Father has for us, that God has given to us, that we be called children of God. Right? When you see and understand the love that God has for you and you exhibit that love towards others, you too will not be fearful of future punishment. I think that's what it's talking about, and I hope it helps. Number seven from L. Sloggle, who says, Pastor Mike, hi, um, hi. Uh, why didn't Luke mention the time gap that took place during Acts 9, 20 through 26 that Paul mentioned in Galatians 1, 17 through 18? Thanks for the answers. Um, this is a, a, a tough issue because <laughs> we're guessing at the motives that writers may have had for not including time gaps. Okay, so let me... Um, let me just preface it with this, and, and I won't get into all the details, but I'll mention, okay, actually, let me just do it this way. Galatians 1, we'll start with that because that'll be the easier passage to, to wrap our heads around. Paul talks about after he was, um, after he got saved, he says that he did not immediately consult with anyone, 
that means the apostles. He's in the context. He's talking about the apostles. It doesn't mean he didn't talk to anybody because he, he obviously talked to Christians, but not the apostles. He didn't go to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles. Um, but he went into away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, he goes up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. And he, it's kind of a private thing where he talks to Peter and James. Then later on, when there's a debate, he goes back to Jerusalem again. And your thought is in Acts 9. Let's look at that passage now. Verse 20 through 26. Why doesn't Luke talk about this? How did I get to Acts 28? Let's try that again. 920. Okay. Um, so it, it's this is after uh, Paul gets saved. He says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem um, of those who called who called upon this name? Wasn't he persecuting them first? And he has, has he not come here for the purpose for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ he was doing some prophetic apologetics let me just point that out uh, verse 23 when many days had passed the Jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to Saul they were watching the gates um, day and night in order to kill him but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were not all afraid of him. They were all afraid of him, excuse me. And then Barnabas and all this other stuff. But let's just say this, like Acts 9, um, before I get into why doesn't he include more details like like Galatians has a couple different things here. Uh, first off, I'll say they seem to harmonize well, Okay. He stays in Damascus for some time. He's proclaiming Jesus. And then he has this moment where in Acts, he says, he increased in strength. He confounds the Jews who live in Damascus. He proves that Jesus is the Christ. Then they plot to kill him. And here's the transition. They took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket, period. And when he had come to Jerusalem, okay, <laughs> so it doesn't say in Acts 9 that he went directly to Jerusalem. He didn't go anywhere else. It doesn't say that he, in Damascus, he didn't have a hub in Damascus and then preach in other locations and come back to Damascus. It doesn't tell us a lot of things. There's lots of room here for a variety of other things to happen in the Apostle Paul's life. There's just a, and then, and here's another episode in the Paul, in the life of Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is what happened. Now let me come back to the question. So in other words, there's lots of, holes where all sorts of things could happen in the book of Acts that he didn't talk about, Luke didn't talk about. But now let me come to your question. Why didn't Luke more carefully align his like data with the same stuff that Paul's saying in Galatians 1? And I think the answer here is simple. Uh, Luke is writing, I think Acts has like 15 years worth of content in 28 chapters. 15 years in 28 chapters. Here's a challenge for you. Summarize 15 years of your life and do it with only the space that Luke has in the book of Acts, 28 chapters. Go for it. Summarize 15 years. You will find that exactly like Luke, you have tons of places where you could later tell a story and it would have happened in between this chapter and that chapter. And you didn't have time or space to mention it, but it wasn't super relevant. Acts in Acts 9, he just wants to say, 
Paul got saved and then he started preaching the gospel and then he eventually, and they persecuted him. They're turned against him, but he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then he comes to Jerusalem and he's got conflict with the apostles because they're scared. They don't know that they can trust him. I think that we have to realize um, every story section in the New Testament is summarizing very large portions in very small spaces. And so there's going to be lots of room for all kinds of other events that happen. John admits this at the end of his gospel where he's like, hey, Jesus did so many other things. I picked these of all that happened, you know, to instill faith in you, to encourage you. But there's so much more Jesus did. Um, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Number eight, Helen Jessica Indries says, can you pray for me? I've battled depression my whole life and the last two weeks I've gotten so low. I need some prayer if you have the time. Um, Helen, we're gonna pray for you right now. Let's pray for Helen. Um, Lord, we lift up Helen and we ask that you help her. Help her, Lord, to think clearly. That's part of the hardest thing right now is for her to think clearly about what's going on. Um, to be able to decide to trust what is true and not to believe everything else. To be able to appreciate your goodness. We pray that she could turn to you and be joyful about salvation, that you'd restore to her the joy of her salvation. That regardless of what else is going on, whether other things are contributing, we just pray that her her heart would be lifted up by you. And we ask God for courage to move forward, knowing that things will improve, um, absolutely improve for Christians especially. And we, we pray that your, your strength would be there, your wisdom would be there, your discernment would be there. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Helen, if I can give you an encouragement, I don't know your situation and I'm not a quick fix kind of person. Um, I'm not the kind of person who tends to be like, oh, we'll just do this and you're fine. I do have a video on the topic of depression that may have some things that will help you. Okay, I'm, again, I'm not suggesting it's quick fix. I mean, maybe God does that sometimes. But to pretend that that's always going to happen is, is um, reckless on our part. Uh, so what I want to encourage you with is that you, you may not be able to control how you feel. You can control what you choose to believe what you choose to believe and you can control perhaps even easier than that what you do so there's times where depression enhances temptation temptation to abandon responsibilities to set aside things that we know we should be doing that are very important and it's okay sometimes to take a step back from things and slow down a bit and have a vacation or a day off that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about when you're actually abandoning things you know you need to do and then it turns into like a downward spiral and so my encouragement to you is uh keep pressing on get up get out of bed go do good things in the name of the lord and don't do it for a quick fix do it because it's it's really important and worth doing um, but i i hope that you that other video i do on depression maybe one of the mods mods could one of you guys find the video i did on depression not too long ago or maybe it was a long time ago i don't know and uh, share it there and hopefully helen you find some some things there that might also assist you and uh, god give you wisdom on everything else related to that yeah but uh i think there's a lot of hope and courage and help in our christian faith if nothing else can you just right now stop and say lord thank you that my sins are forgiven and put on thankfulness it doesn't mean you feel better but it's a good thing to do all right number nine our fish says why did jesus god need to be filled led or anointed by the spirit Troubled by some saying that Jesus did everything as a man through the Spirit, so we should be able to do everything Jesus did. Okay, that is like a, a, a teaching currently being popularized by Bill Johnson from Bethel, that Jesus did everything as a man. 
um, who was filled with the Spirit. So it's true that Jesus did everything as a man who's filled with the Spirit. That's true, but is that the whole story? Uh, Jesus was also God with us. He never stopped being God with us. There was no point at which Jesus was not God with us. Like, at no point. So when, when, when here's an example of this. When the demons look at Jesus, they don't look at Jesus and go, Egad, there's... Did they say Egad? Egad, there's, there's a man who's filled with the Spirit. They were in horror because they knew who Jesus was because he wasn't just a man filled with the Spirit, right? He is, he is the Lord of all creation, come to the earth in human form, but he's still God. And this brought terror to the demons when they see him and they fall down. They're like, oh, Lord, 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 don't, don't torment us before the time. They're not responding as though it's just to a man filled with the Spirit. They're responding because it's Jesus. You get what I'm saying is Jesus' identity never stopped being God. He wasn't just a man filled with the Spirit. He was a man filled with the Spirit, and that's important. But what I don't want to do is take the two natures of Christ, human and divine, and split them apart. And that's what uh, Bethel and Bill Johnson tend to do. Now, they're not doing it in the heretical sense, as far as I can tell. Let me preface this. As far as I can tell, I haven't read everything they've written. But as far as I can tell, they're they're trying to be careful so that they're not denying the deity of Christ. And that's why they use the phrase as a man. So Jesus does everything as a man filled with the spirit, not as God. And then it becomes, oh, you're not denying that he was God and man. You're saying that he um, he operated as a man filled with the spirit so that we could, and this is, this is the important part to Bethel, okay? Don't think it's about Jesus theology, it's really about you. So that you can can do all the same miracles Jesus did and expect even more in your life right now today, right? So th this this is the real agenda for Bethel and Bill Johnson and those guys. And I don't think that that is, is present in scripture, right? Like not that I'm aware of, is there like a biblical passage I can go to that says, here's how Jesus did his miracles and therefore here's your model for your miracles and here's your expectation for miracles. Like I don't see that in scripture. I think this comes from outside of scripture and they're trying to find a place for it. So, um, that being said, my response to this is not to deny that Jesus was anointed, led, and filled by the Spirit. I don't deny that. My, my response is to, to not isolate that from the fact that he's also God with us. I just don't want to isolate it. So, I, I, I don't swallow the teaching there that I hear from Bethel and Bill Johnson and those guys. I realize it has an agenda that's miracle-driven. It's their version of understanding of revival, and I think that it, it is a distorted understanding of miracles in the New Testament and in the early church. Okay, so I don't swallow that, but I don't reject it. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and part of that is because he's an example to us. Part of that is because then we can be filled with the Spirit. But similar and the same are not, this, are not the same thing. <laughs> um, in a similar way that Jesus was filled with the Spirit, I can be filled with the Spirit. But is it the same? And that's the argument from Bethel. It's identical, which is why they're going to say Jesus as a man and all that stuff. A lot of it's rhetorical and it's not really based on clear teachings of scripture. It's like implications of this and that drawn out to this and that. And I want solid teachings from scripture. And my response to that would be that, no, we don't expect all believers to walk on water, to raise the dead, to do all those things and I don't see that expectation in scripture, even in the, like, go look at the book of Acts. 
and ask yourself this, do all believers operate in regularly in these signs and wonders, or is it mostly just the apostles? You're going to find it's mostly just the apostles and it's to establish the doctrines of the Christian faith. Now I'm not a cessationist, but to realize there is at least a highlight of these miraculous things happening among a certain group of people who went extinct in the first century and were never replaced by others. There's no apostolic succession. There's just elders and stuff who come in afterwards. All right, number 10, <laughs> a lot more can be said about that, but keys of the kingdom says, since there is finite and uh, since life is finite and heaven is infinite, how do we justify spending any amount of time not working to influence eternity? Where is the balance between relaxation and work? Ephesians 5. Let's go to the scriptures that you uh, that you reference here. There's two of them. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Boy, I hope I can bring some wisdom to this. It's a good question. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Hold on, I got a cough. Just thought I'd spare you guys that loud burst in your ears. Um, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Okay, that's the first reference. The second one is 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This is interesting because these are two different kind of uh, topics in these verses. The, the second one is about normal uh, not even um, ministry focused living, but normal like daily Christian life that you you are just to be a good worker. Like say you work at the post office. Okay, well go mind your own affairs. Don't be trying to read other people's mail. Like we're just saying like take care of your own responsibilities, work with your hands, be a hard worker, be a good person who contributes to society. But you might, the way your question's asked here, you might, um, keys of the kingdom, you might see that kind of work, like what some would call secular work, in my view, if you're a Christian and you have a job, it's not secular, it's sacred in the sense that you're doing it under the Lord. That makes it sacred. Not the, the work itself, but the the reason you're doing it. Um, <clears throat> but this is talking about that kind of work. But but your your question might be, hey, how can I how can I do this if it's not helping eternity somehow? And um and then the other one would be look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Okay. Let's be wise with our time. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. This, I would say, definitely applies to leisure activities. Okay, this one's more closely aligned to your question. Um, leisure activities are a danger for us. And we live in a world with so many leisure opportunities. I used to be bored when I was a kid. Right? I would have time where I had nothing to do and I didn't, I, I just, I was bored. It doesn't really happen that much anymore in that you've always got something else you can look at or go to or, or go experience or enjoy or whatever. And that can be a bit of a danger. So that's a legitimate danger for us. I don't want to ignore that. Okay, keys of the kingdom. Most Christians are probably spending too much time being entertained. I'm not suggesting it's like the ultimate sin of their lives, but it's probably true that we're spending less time reading. You know, I watched you know five hours of TV shows and movies and YouTube videos today. Um, that were just pure entertainment and I spent zero time in the word. Like, okay, obviously there's a problem there. This is not redeeming the time. But let's get to the other part of your question, which is how do we justify spending any time not working to influence eternity? Where's the balance between relaxation and work? My thought is this. Um, in the scriptures, 
God not just gives them rest, he demands rest, right? To, to the Jews in particular, he says, like, you will rest on the Sabbath. And they rest. And the apostles probably continued this habit in their ministries for the most part. Maybe Paul might have been an exception in some cases, at least depending on where he was. Um, when, the, when he was with the Gentiles, he may not have. When he was with the Jews, he probably did. Um, but that was just relaxation. Like, they're just taking it easy. So our danger is not that we would um, don't ever relax. That's not the, the, the issue. The danger is not that you would relax at all or that you take it easy at all. The danger is that you would just take it easy too much. So yes, lay down. But also get back up. But also go take a nap. But also get your work done. And there's a balance. There's a balance. And God understands that balance for us as humans. And um, I think that this is a good thing. Um, he, God wants us to be able to rest. And there is even eternal value in our rest. Because you are the one resting and you are eternally valuable. <laughs> so so if, if I go with my wife to like get lunch somewhere and we just sit there and, and have lunch and talk and chat and have a relaxing time. Or we go to the park and just sit there and relax. Like there's nothing wrong with this. This is healthy. It's relationship building. I'm appreciating God's creation. I'm thanking him for it. There's nothing wrong with that. The only question is that I don't do it too much. And that's definitely a problem we have today. Number 11, Gabriel Martinez says, how do you answer a Catholic who uses Revelation 12 to argue Mary's queenship? Thank you for your work. You have helped me in my face so much. God bless. Love from Venezuela. Okay, boy, I, this is an issue. Um, it's not fresh in my mind. I would want to go and spend time like developing my argument so I could give you a specific, you know, these five points that are really strong. But let's just read through the text here. And um, I'll offer a few thoughts because I'm not going to have time to do that anytime soon. I'm still just obsessed with the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And I'll be obsessed with that for a few weeks still. Um, Romans, Revelation 12 verses 1 through, well, we'll see how far we read. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the child, uh, before the woman, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule, and the nation all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Then there's this fight um, and uh, Satan goes and he attacks the, the, the children of the, the woman, her other children, interestingly. Uh, the woman was given... Wait, when the great dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, verse 13, he pursued the woman who had been who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great, the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to be to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time, probably three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, the um, 
the first thing I want to just say is there's an obvious connection where you could say this is about Mary, right? A woman gives birth to a child, right? <laughs> like that's, that's like the obvious part. The child seems to be Jesus, right? That, that, that would be implied as well. But I think that the woman, and I think most commentators agree, is that the woman is more likely Israel. Israel. And this is because not just of the, um, the woman giving birth, but there's a lot more going on. Let's, let's look at some specifics. Okay, the woman's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This may harken back to Jacob, uh, Joseph and his dream, right, about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down to him, right? He is to become like a, a leader for, for Israel and for Israel, right? Not the nations of the world. The, this, is, this is about Israel. So there's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This, this is, is Israel language not um, Mary language. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the, and the agony of giving birth. This could be seen as Israel who has been delivering the Christ child to the nations in great agony, right, over time. And finally, Jesus comes forth. Israel's, Israel's gone through all kinds of things as, as the ones who will be the Christ-bearing nation, okay? And another sign appeared in heaven, the, the great dragon, okay? The dragon hates the woman specifically, now, we don't know of any place where we read about, okay, we read about Herod trying to kill Jesus. We don't read about the targeting of Mary by anybody that I'm aware of in history, in scripture. Um, but we do read about Satan trying to destroy the nation of Israel. Absolutely, right? We read about this for sure. And this seems to be what's going on here. It's Satan's agenda to destroy Israel because they will bring forth the child, Christ. That, I think, is a better understanding of these things. Um, the battle between uh, Satan and the woman or the attacks between on Satan and the woman. After she gives birth to the, to the male child, she, she goes out into the wilderness. Um, she's nourished and then he continues to fight. He tries to put a flood out after her. I'm just scanning some of the passage here. And then she's, she's protected. And so the dragon turns and attacks her other children. That is those who, in this case, are grafted into Israel through Christ. So he attacks Israel. And then he attacks other believers because God's protecting Israel. That, that's how I understand the passage. Let me just say this. Um, the, uh, the teaching that some would give here, that she's the queen of heaven, doesn't connect well with the passage in my opinion. The stars and the moon and the sun connect more to Joseph and language about Israel as a whole, not heaven. Do you catch the, the disconnect there? That language, the stars and the sun and moon. And the stuff that happens after the child, and you could say, well, that's her fleeing to Egypt and she's being, but she flees after she gives birth. She flees, not the child flees. So that doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect to this, what happened with Jesus. Oh, there we go. It connects to what happened with Israel. All right. Anyway, that, that would be my short answer to that question, and I'm sure that more time could be spent on it. Jonathan Wick says, hi, how can one ever be sure that the arguments for God's existence are truly sound? Is it because all current objections fail? Maybe there's an Achilles heel that has not come up yet. Blessings. Um, Jonathan Wick, my response to you here is there's a difference between um, uh, confidence and what some people call like absolute certainty. 
And I think William Lane Craig put it this way. He said, certainty is a will of the wisp, a will of the wisp. Or in other words, it's something that you're going to look for and never find. Um, if I'm persuaded by the idea, what if there's a problem with my argument for God's existence that I have not yet found? And this causes me to, to just the if, just a pure hypothetical if, if that causes me to doubt God's existence. All I have to do is respond with exactly the same amount of iffiness and say, what if there's a problem with the hypothetical if that I just haven't found yet either? And then I'm back to trusting in God. If we're going to waver in our faith in Jesus because of completely unevidenced ifs, what ifs? We're going to waver in our faith in everything. Like, I'm going to drink this water. But what, what if it's poisoned? I mean, I don't think it's poison. I have no reason to think it's poison. But what if there's a reason to think it's poison that I have not yet discovered? I guess I can't drink the water. Like, this is not a reasonable way to approach things. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, the arguments for God are sound. And then therefore you should conclude that you're going to believe that God exists. Like, it's that simple. It's that simple. Please, Jonathan, don't be persuaded by what ifs. Another person has put it this way. Possibilities are cheap. Like, but is it possible that Jesus was really put here by aliens who, who, you know, when he died, they resurrected him with their advanced technology and they were just playing, doing an experiment on, on our, our planet. Like if this persuades you, it's because you're just an unreasonable human. <laughs> like, and in which case there's not a lot of reason that can be applied to this, except to show that it's not reasonable to show this is unreasonable. Um, what if, like some of you guys watch me, you look at my teaching. What if everything Mike says, he just makes up on the spot? What if, what if, well, that's a, sure. That's a possibility. But if you live your life like that, um, you will have a lot of psychological problems. So yeah. Um, I will, I will add this, that not only do we have sound philosophical arguments for God's existence, Jonathan, if you're like me, you look at creation and it's obvious that God exists. This is not just a philosophical argument. This is simply a perception. Like, yeah, there's a God. Like, it's just obvious there's a God. Like, look, look at my cat. Well, that's her tail. <laughs> look at this. Look at this kitty. Look at this fuzzy. She's not as fat as she looks. She's like mostly hair. All right. Like, I'm just saying, like, God exists. <laughs> Consider the fact that that you are a, a thinking, living, reasoning being. You're not just a machine, but like you have self-awareness. Like there's something in you that is like a soul. Like whether you have a philosophical argument to go with this or not, there's a God. And yeah, I think that the fact that of God's existence is a starting point for other things, um, not just a conclusion. We cannot arrive at with philosophical arguments, which we can't. R. Lund has a question. R. Lund 3 says, I just heard about prevenient grace. I've looked it up and just don't understand it. Can you explain it? Probably not that well because I don't hold to prevenient grace and haven't spent much time on it. Um, my understanding and uh, informed Arminians in the comments can you know re respond to this as well. But my understanding is that prevenient grace would be um, starting with the belief of affirming total depravity or that mankind... Um, let me say this carefully. I'm not, I'm not saying mankind is incapable of being aware of any truths about God. I'm not saying that. But, but total depravity would hold that mankind, one of the things it would hold is that mankind, even when the gospel's being preached, even if the Holy Spirit is like 
uh, doing some sort of work in the life of the person, like, or in the mind of the person, in the conscience of the person, that they will always say no to the gospel. They're so depraved that they're just always going to reject the gospel, reject Christ, reject God. They're so disposed against God that they'll say no always to the gospel. And Calvinists, this is not a prevenient grace view, but Calvinists would solve this by saying, you see what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, gives you a new, a new heart, so to speak, you're regenerated. You're effectively born again. And as a result of that, you always say yes to Jesus, just like you would have always said no. Now you always say yes. And that's part of the heart of Calvinism is that regeneration precedes faith. Yeah, you get regenerated before you believe, at least logically. Um, the regeneration, put it this way, is the cause of your belief. Um, Arminians, as I understand it, would respond to this with prevenient grace. So some would describe prevenient grace as someone, well, you're not regenerated. You're like sort of brought from a state of totally, I hate God to like, okay, I'm at least, I at least have the potential to accept the gospel now. And they would suggest that this is like some sort of an actual work where you go from one state to another. Like you, 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 you would always say no to the gospel. And now you're at least open to saying yes to the gospel. Now, the reason why I, and they would hold that this happens across the board to everybody. So Calvinists would, would only hold that that regeneration thing happens to the saved. So this is connects to a bunch of other Calvinist doctrines in Tulip, like uh, limited atonement and stuff. Um, but the Arminian would suggest that this prevenient grace thing, this like what some call partial regeneration, which I think is a clumsy phrase. Which if I was Arminian, I would not like that term. Um, they're going to hold that this happens to all of humanity so that even those who end up rejecting Christ, they still experienced prevenient grace. Um, now, you could argue that what, what I believe is a prevenient grace thing. Cause I do think the Holy Spirit's working on people, but I don't think he's taking them from a state of spiritual deadness to a state of spiritual ability that they didn't have. I just don't think it's that particular work. So I reject prevenient grace, at least at the moment. Um, forgive me if I said that wrong. I did my best. Number 14, Jonathan Beckham says, how do you interpret the hopelessness of Psalm 88? Can you comfort someone who feels what Psalm 88, 18b implies? Oof, I would have to like, I would really want to like just look at the whole Psalm and really work through it. But um, for the sake of time, um, no, nah, we're going to read the whole Psalm <laughs> for the sake of thinking biblically about everything. Okay. Um, a song, a Psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, uh, Leonath, a masculine of Heman, the Ezraite. Ezra height, sorry. Uh, yeah, you, you try saying that three times fast. All right. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol or the grave, death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Salah. Um, so everything's gloom and doom so far. Usually the Psalms will have some light, uh, significant light in them. They'll have these affirmations, but I'm still going to trust you, God, but I have this future hope in you, God. Psalm 88 goes on like this, though. Verse eight, you have caused my companions to shun me. 
You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? This feels like a doubting question, not like a confident question about, but God, you do work wonders for the dead. It feels like a doubting. It's not a claim that God doesn't, but it feels like the psalmist is like confused or unsure about this. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness of your, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But, O Lord, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. That's the most hopeful thing we've seen so far. But I'm still going to pray to you, God. I'm still crying out to you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a, like a flood all day long. They close me in. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Now, um... Is that the end of the story for the psalmist? It doesn't say, okay? It doesn't say that's the end of the story. Look, this is a low point in the person's life. And there are people who are going through these low points. And if nothing else, they can at least know that in the scripture, it shows that this does happen. Like, it seems as though he has his own problems that have that have caused this because it's he, it says in verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Um, and the implication is that there's something that he's done that's wrong but there's another side of this where it feels like the other way around he's like i've been close to death from my youth up like it's always been this way but psalm 88 what i think redeems this psalm I, i'm gonna use a very clumsy phrase here forgive me is jesus um in my studies of jesus in the old testament psalm 88 which some have called the saddest psalm in the bible the lowest psalm the most depressing psalm in the whole bible takes on completely new light in the light of jesus christ and this is this is my encouragement to you uh, Jonathan Beckham. Okay, listen. I'm going to walk through the psalm and I'm going to mention a few of the things of how it relates to Jesus. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Okay, this is, this is uh, the one consistent good thing in the psalm. There's a crying out to God. Help, help, help. This is my situation. It's all doom and gloom, but I want help. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus on the on the path to the cross, Jesus on the cross, these are all quite true of him. He even says that his soul was troubled when he was in the garden and he's deeply grieved to the point of death. Okay, that sounds kind of like Psalm 88.3. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. He's literally counted among not just those who died, Jesus is counted among the wicked who were killed for their sins. I'm a man who has no strength. Uh, his strength was dried up like a potsherd, uh, as Psalm 22 says, and Jesus actually had no strength. He couldn't carry his own cross successfully the whole way, so they had to have Simon of Cyrene help. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. This speaks of a hopelessness in death. This is me. It's as though I'm going to die in hopelessness. Jesus, he experiences our hopeless death. The death that the psalmist writes about, Jesus ends up also experiencing. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of, uh, in the regions dark and deep. Jesus was actually put in a tomb, in a dark tomb that is not only physically in the earth, but metaphorically, it's it's Sheol, the grave. It is he's he's placed in the place of death. That's where he is. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. 
and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Again, waves in, in worship songs, we tend to think of waves as being like God, like positive things coming our way. Um, waves here are, are are seen as like trials and pain <laughs> in the book of Psalms. Um, but your wrath lies heavy upon me. See, God's wrath for what I did ended up being experienced by Jesus. Not that the father was angry at the son. That's not what I'm saying. But if I see wrath as God uh, openly punishing sin, well, Jesus experienced the punishment for my sin. So we could say that his wrath lied upon him. Verse eight, you've caused my companions to shun me. Right? How did you feel if you were a disciple and you were following Jesus? You're all happy. Ooh, he's the Messiah. Ooh, he's look, he raises the dead, he heals the sick. And there he is being rejected and crucified. He's walking forward to his killers, and now you're shunning him, hiding, scattering, pretending that you don't know him. You've caused my companions to shun me. This is all part of the plan. God caused it. Part of the plan. That they would the you know, as uh, Jesus quotes the Old Testament saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Um, you've made me a horror to them. And indeed, that's what it was. Jesus was a horror to them. All the pride they felt in Christ, they felt shame now in being associated with Christ as they were hiding. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. So he's trapped as Jesus was um, you know, trapped in the tomb, but he was also trapped on the cross. There was a point at which he was it was his death was inescapable. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And we, we see this vividly dis experienced by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's crying out, Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, um, let this cut pass from me. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? And this is beautiful to me because what was a question in the psalmist, like, oh, is there really even hope after this? Is answered by Jesus, yes. He works wonders for the dead. Jesus rises from the dead. Right? The departed rise up to praise you. And then we in Christ join with that resurrection. That even in our deepest, darkest moments, the hope of Christ meets us there and says, yes, God does wonders for you. Yes, God loves you. Yes, you have a hope. Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Yes. Jesus, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Right? Gave him to death is the point that his, his God's steadfast love is declared in the grave of Christ, right? And his faithfulness to those who have died is proven by his resurrection of Jesus that because he lives, we will live too. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Jesus, according to Peter, Jesus um, preached unto the dead, those, the spirit, the departed spirits. He preached in the, in what we would call the afterlife probably clumsily, but he preached to them about the truth of, of his redemption, the gospel. He preached to them. That means that the dead found out about um, what Jesus had done in a sense before the living understood it. Uh, that's an interesting study in First Peter. But I, O oh Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. And this is your encouragement for your friend. Maybe they feel like they identify everything with Psalm 88. They feel like it all is them. But notice this, the psalmist won't stop praying. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop seeking God. I'm totally unsure. I'm insecure, but I will not quit seeking the Lord. That's an admonition from this saddest psalm. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Right? Jesus on the cross, Psalm 22, he quotes it, and it's very similar to this. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Indeed, Jesus suffers and dies because we all will experience the punishment of our sins and, and death and separation from God if he doesn't. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. Jesus indeed was 
targeted from the time he was a baby for assassination for death. So he's from his youth up, he was afflicted and close to death. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. But he sees this as ultimately God's design. And Jesus saw it that way as well. Your wrath has swept over me. Um, again, verse 16 is about the fact that not only am I suffering these things, but they're the consequence of sin. So Jesus is not just dying to die, right? He's dying to pay for my sin. He, it's, he's taking the place of my myself in suffering um, punishment for sin. Verse 17, they surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Jesus was alone. He was alone. Uh, Peter, Judas, all the apostles betrayed him, turned their back on him, and his companions became darkness. But that wasn't the whole story. That was just a low point. So that would be my encouragement to your friend is this isn't your whole story. This is your low point. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep trusting in him. Look to Christ as your hope and don't give up. Number 15, Bridgish Joshi says, hi, Pastor Mike. Love the content. Thank you. And you say, is it a sin for Christians to see a mental health therapist or psychiatrist? Is biblical counseling the only option for Christians? Um, I see no sin here. Okay. Every mental health therapist and psychiatrist is going to be individual. And some of them are going to give you wonderful godly advice. And some are going to give you ungodly advice. Um, do you have to go to a, quote, biblical counselor? Look, it, I've, I've known enough people to know this. That when you, when you go to a psychiatrist, there's the stuff they had in their books. There's the stuff they've experienced and, the, you know, as they've tried to help people and how that's changed them. And then there's their commitment to worldview issues. And if they have a biblical worldview, that will impact their psychiatry unless they are inconsistent with themselves. That being said, I'm open to going to anybody, anybody, but I obviously want a, want a Christian to be the one helping me work through issues that touch my Christian worldviews. That would be my preference. Yeah, I want, I would like that, right? But that doesn't mean that... Um, even a secular counselor who's not a believer wouldn't be able to have some good advice for you. It's just that it might be mixed in with other secular, um, or I should say unbiblical values. And you'd have to figure that out. You'd have to figure that out. Generally speaking though, uh, if anybody who goes to a, a therapist, including a Christian counselor, they need to make sure that they are not letting that person become like, let them help you. But don't let them become your new Bible is all I'm suggesting, okay? Like there's going to be times where even if it's a Christian counselor, they may suggest things that are not helpful or not consistent with your Christian commitments. More than anything, I want to be biblical. I want to be committed to Christ. I want to be committed to thinking biblically about things. That doesn't mean though that I would spur help from somebody else, maybe even who has less of a biblical knowledge than, than I do, but they have a lot of experience helping people work through some of the struggles I'm going through. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That's that's scripture that says that. So it's okay to get various counselors. Um, I, I don't I don't see a problem with that at all. A mental health therapist, psychiatrist, I would test them by what they say, not by their position as a psychiatrist or a mental health therapist, right? So then I'm open, very open to anybody, potentially helping anybody. Number sixteen, Daxton H says, is it possible to be one hundred percent certain in Christianity? And the Bible is believing, but also having doubt a sin. I would like to have 100% certainty, but there's always that doubt. It all could be a lie. Daxton, um, is it possible to have 100% certainty? Um, probably not for you. 
<laughs> Probably not for you. Um, so let me ask you this, Daxton. What are you 100% certain of? I want you to really think of it. Take Christianity, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a minute. Right now, let's just ask. What are you 100% certain of in life at all? Well, I'm 100% certain I exist. Like there's, I mean, there's something I'm super certain of, right? But how do you know? Maybe you're just a program that's being wired to, you could be in a simulation in a computer somewhere and you're just, you're just wired to say you exist and to reflect back and think you exist. But maybe, it, I mean, isn't there a chance that that's true? Well, I'm 100% certain that, that my mom that raised me, that that's actually my biological mom. Are you really though? I mean, do you really look that much like them? Are you sure? I mean, you've seen a birth certificate, but how hard would that be to fake? Like you've seen some pictures, but what if, what if they just took the wrong baby home from the hospital? Are you sure? Are you a hundred percent sure? Like really hundred percent certain. So my point here, Daxton, and this, this touches an issue we brought up earlier is that the problem isn't that you fail to be 100% certain in Christianity. The problem is that you think 100% certainty is something that is reachable or that is needed in order to have trust and faith. And that's where I'm going to push back and say, Daxton, for you, it is probably not possible to be 100% certain. Because even if you had God himself reveal himself to you, show you things, do wonderful things, you at the end of the day, you could still say, but what if I'm delusional? What if, I mean, what if I'm delusional? What if it was all part of a weird alien experiment? So this should help you because what it gets you to do is realize that 100% certainty is not very valuable. And that if you want to hold back belief until you're 100% certain, if that's your standard, then you're actually the irrational one. It's irrational to think for me to think that my mom is not my biological mother, even though I haven't run a DNA test, even though I don't have a total perfect proof, I have every good reason to think she is and no good reason to think she's not, I would be a fool not to not to call her mom. <laughs> so with Christianity, you have so many good reasons to trust in Christ. You should just trust in Christ. And this idea of 100% certainty is, um, like I said earlier, will of the wisp or it's, it's yeah. And... Um, you said is believing, but also having doubt a sin. No, no, absolutely not. Believing, but also having doubt is, a, is, is an oftentimes a normal thing for many people. But, but you realize that happens all the time. Like when you get on an airplane, you, you believe it's going to successfully carry you to your destination, but you might feel a little scared while you're on it, but you still got on the airplane. You're still on it. You're still traveling, right? You're just experiencing psychological fear or worry. That's a normal human condition. I think Jesus receives us. He says to the man who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The man had belief and, and doubt at the same time. And Jesus healed, healed the, the, the person the man was asking to be healed. So God accepts that. Um, yeah. What you need to do is learn how to, how to doubt your doubts. Because irrational doubts, like, but I'm only 98% sure, like, that's an irrational doubt, and you need to learn to apply um, skepticism towards those things. All right, let's go to number 17, which is Kathy, who says, my husband yells and curses at me. I always tell him I don't deserve it, but he continues, can this be corrected? If so, how? And would I dishonor God if I stop being physically intimate with him? Okay, Kathy, um, 
I don't know how to correct your husband. Nobody does. He's a jerk. He's just a jerk. I'm sorry. A husband that yells and curses at his wife is a horrible person. <laughs> they are. And if you if you do it and you think, it's no big deal. This is the way we always are. You have problems. Anybody listening to me now? You yell and curse at your wife. Something's seriously wrong with you. And the way that you treat your beloved, the way that you treat the one who stands in the place of the church, in, the, in, in Christ in the church, he died for her. He gave himself for her. And you treat her that way. That's... You yell and cuss at your spouse, husband or wife, something seriously wrong in your marriage. Does this mean you should get divorced? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you should stop, right? So yeah, he needs to stop. But the problem here is this, as a pastor, I've had many, many times, Kathy, where somebody like you would come to me and what they really want is they want me to help them change someone else. And I can't do that. I don't know how to change your husband. Um, obviously, you could have levels of confrontation, right? You confront him. You confront him with someone he respects where you would ad address the issue. With your kids, you address the issue with your kids and him. You know, dad, we all want to tell you, you have to stop talking to mom like that. This is wrong. Or maybe you would, if he's a Christian and he goes to the church, you can bring it up with church leaders, which might help or he might freak out and leave the church because I don't know what kind of guy he is. Okay, those are those are things you can do. But I don't know how to make him do anything or make you do anything. All I can do is give you counsel. So my counsel to you, Kathy, is, is um, remember the grace that God's given you and try to extend as much grace as possible to your husband. Okay? What he's doing is mean and wrong and horrible. He's wronging you. And when somebody's wronging you, that's when you can show them the love of Christ. That is the greatest time to show them the love of Christ. Where you... You don't now. You're not. You're not taking responsibility as though his yelling and cussing is your fault because it's not. But you're not responding to it with more of the same. You're not going to respond in the flesh to him being in the flesh. This is your call as a Christian. Walk in the Spirit. This is not me giving the advice that if you're just a good wife, he won't do that. I don't believe that. Okay. Um, this is my counsel to any Christian. When someone's hurting you, make sure that it doesn't cause you to be in the flesh and for you to sin. And this is probably not the advice you wanted because your advice is you, you want advice to help change him. And I'm suggesting that this is my general adv advice to anybody in relationships, in marriage especially. <clears throat> we always want the other person to change and God is always working in our hearts to change us. Let this change you. Let it cause you to be more gracious, you to be more humble. Finally, you said, can I stop being physically intimate with him? Um, based on what you've told me, I, I don't think that that's a good thing to do. Um, I think you're going to exacerbate the problems then. And 1 Corinthians 7 suggests that husbands and wives shouldn't do this. They shouldn't withhold each other physically because it just leads to more temptation and more problems. And <clears throat> um, But if, this, if, if the abuse becomes more and more extreme and dangerous, you can flee. But which would, would obviously involve not physical intimacy, but it's not just a tool to manipulate in that sense. So Kathy, yeah, those are my pieces of advice for you. Please sit down um, with, with other godly people in your circle who you can talk to about this. And my only counsel finally is this, Kathy, tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Don't hold back anything because it feels embarrassing. Obviously, you're not going to share everything in a little YouTube chat comment. Thank you for sharing what you did, and I hope that the council helped you. Number 18, this is Daniel Louie who says, Hi Mike, is God actively judging the world today or is all judgment held out till the second coming? 
when negative things happen, like natural disasters, how much of this can we say is God's judgment? So God is actively judging the world in a variety of ways today. Um, I would affirm that because A, in the Old Testament, he often uses natural disasters as ways of judging. B, in the New Testament, Jesus even predicts the destruction of towns and stuff like that. See, in Revelation, we have discussions of God's future judgment on the world as bowls of judgment are poured out, and that takes the form of natural disasters. So old, new, and prophetic about the future, we have good reasons to think that God does that. But is here's, here's where it gets challenging. Is every natural disaster a judgment of God? No. Like, for instance, look at the book of Job. In the book of Job, we have... Some of those are natural disasters. A wind comes and knocks the house down, right? Lightning strikes and destroys. These are natural disasters, but they're actually satanically being orchestrated. Okay, so they weren't judgment, right? There was something else going on. We also have um, Jesus who talks about how a man, <clears throat> there, were, there were a group of people who were killed when this tower fell, a building fell down and killed people. A tower, and I can't remember the name where it was. Salome? Anyway, this tower fell, kill people. And Jesus challenges those who think that this is because they were being judged for their sin. And he pushes back and suggests no. And his argument is interesting because it sounds like he says, hey, if God was just judging, if every time somebody's getting punished, they're getting punished for sin, well, God would just kill you all. Because, because if judgment was just ongoing, constant, always perfect, um, perfectly suited to, to sin, we would all just be slain. So, so yeah, God's actually not judging in the sense of final judgment right now. But natural disasters can and are used by God. The tough part for me and you, Daniel, is knowing when that is. So if there's a hurricane and someone dies in the hurricane, am I supposed to be like, God caused that, that was judgment? Or do I take a, perhaps a humble approach knowing Job, knowing the story of the destruction of this, um, of the killing of the people from that tower falling? And I take the humble approach and say, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not in the mind of God. I'm not seeing the spiritual realm. I just don't know. So I tend to take the more humble approach. And let me just say this. There's, there's a sort of arrogance of thinking that I can vaguely hear about a disaster somewhere else in the world and just spiritually know why it happened. That is not a biblical thing. That is a spiritual arrogance thing. And that I've seen too many times. All right, Alana, uh, <clears throat> Alana Qu uh, Quinones says, is there any hidden meaning behind Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet in scripture? I have heard that. And what I've heard is that um, the idea is that she was doing something very, like it's, it's a euphemism where she basically became very sexual with him. Um, I don't take it that way personally. And I would, and I, I, my bar for taking it that way would be pretty high. <laughs> I, I would think that she just uncovered his feet and it was like a, a, like she literally just uncovered his feet and it was a sign. Um, some would argue otherwise. I haven't heard the, a good case for that. Maybe it exists. I haven't spent a lot of time on it, Alana. So what I'm going to say is this um, on, on a similar note. There are those who want to, I mean, they just want to sexualize everything in scripture, right? So Jonathan and David, they weren't just really deeply cr close friends like scripture says. They were sexual. So John the Baptist, when he leans upon Jesus, you know, in the, in the, um, in, in the, in this meal at a meal, 
that it implies they had some sexual relationship because he's like, I was the disciple Jesus loved. Except they didn't use the word love to mean sex the way that some people nowadays do. There are those who want to sexualize everything in scripture. And um, that tends to make me very hesitant to read that sort of stuff into the text. Doesn't mean it's not possible, but I have a bit of a hesit hesitancy about it. If it feels like a rumor, then don't soak it up so quick. Um, number 20, final question for today. This is from Damie O, who says, how do I get better in my relationship with God? I'm slipping away, what do I do? Damie, my encouragement is, it's probably obvious to everyone else what you need to do. And you need to maybe look around and ask yourself, I'm, I'm think, of, think of this as a friend telling you this, and ask yourself, what in my life are the obvious steps everyone else would tell me to do that I'm just ignoring? That's key here. <laughs> this is like a big deal because these are very simple, obvious things that obviously I could say things like read the Bible, okay, pray, go to church, be in fellowship with other Christians, Stop sleeping with your 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 other boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever. I could say those types of things, right? But there's also like just those who know you. Those who know you. Where if you just actually surveyed spiritual, truly spiritual Christians in your life and you asked, what do I have to do to get closer to God? They would just immediately say what? Because they know you. And sometimes we need to remember how others see us because we're blind to some of our own issues. Um, so, Damie, yeah, that's my thought. Um, seek the Lord and you'll find him. But don't base your closeness with God on how strong your emotions are right now. So, I'm married. Me and my wife have, I think, a very healthy relationship. But when I evaluate, this might help, when I evaluate my relationship with my wife, I don't think of how strong my butterflies are at the moment. It doesn't even occur to me not even on my radar. What I think of is the way that we talk to each other, whether or not we tell each other about deep things that are going on in our lives, whether or not we can get along for extended periods of time, like we can hang out and spend time together. These are like measures of a relationship, whether or not she's the go-to I have for when I have something on my heart I need to tell somebody. Do I tell her or do I tell someone else? Whether or not I'm the go-to she has, does she tell me or someone else? These are actually ways of measuring a relationship that are not based on how I feel. But often we measure our relationship with God based on our butterflies. This is dangerous because you can have butterflies and have no relationship with God. You can have a great relationship with God and have no butterflies. So it's not a very good measure. So I'm gonna suggest this. Measure your relationship with God in this. Those who love me will obey my commands, Jesus says. Am I walking in a way that shows that Jesus is Lord of my life? That's one of the easiest things to do. It may not be fun, but it's very revealing and it shows us what's really going on. And I'm not saying only highlight areas you fail and that's all there, that's all you pay attention to, but pay, look at your lifestyle and the life choices you make and say, are you walking with Christ in a visible way in your life? It should be obvious. Don't measure by butterflies because butterflies flutter buys. Is that, does that make any sense? <laughs> Anyway, all right, Davey, um, then consequently, how you would get a better relationship is to walk in greater appreciation of God 
in love for what he's done for you, which is going to be helped and increased by things like going to church and reading the Bible and praying, but also in putting off sin because these are other loves. These are other commitments that are fighting for your commitment to God. So I hope that helps. Lord bless you all. Thank you so much for joining on Monday. The next video in the Mark series is coming. And this one's actually, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be doing a, um, how would I interpret the longer ending of Mark if it is, if it does belong in the text? I'm just going to say, how would I interpret it? We're going to walk through it. Um, I'm actually going to do the full teaching on whether or not it should be in the text, or at least all of what I've learned about that over the past few weeks. The following week, the following Monday, that's the plan anyhow. It's just taking way, way, way more time than I keep thinking it will. And I'm hopefully going to be able to make sense of it and bring it to you in a way that's helpful. And we will deal with this longer ending of Mark passage. This is the passage where the snake handling verse is, the drinking poison verses, and the idea that um, signs and wonders are going to follow the believers is also in this passage. Um, other than that, it's, it's largely uncontroversial, but most the most controversial stuff is the signs and wonders related stuff. And the snake handling verse, which is hijacked by a very small minority of weird country preachers in the Midwest of the United States who have suffered the fate of death because of their obvious folly. This is so sad. It's so sad to see it happening. Um, but we'll talk about that as well. So that's coming up on Monday. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Trust in him. Even when the time is dark, it's a temporary dark before the light. And that alone, the future that we have as Christians alone, should be able to help us a lot in those times. Take care.